0: I read an article this week, I don't know if you read many articles, I sadly read too many articles probably, uh, I tend to be on Twitter a little too much sometimes, and I know Twitter almost died this week, but it's still alive, if you didn't know, um, it still works, Elon's kept it up a little bit longer I guess, but um, I read an article though this week in the, the Atlantic that was published, and its title read, "America's pursuing happiness in all the wrong ways. But that was an interesting title, so naturally it's clickbait for me. I read it. <laughs> and so I click on it, read this article. It's usually The Atlantic has like long form a lot of times, so it's a pretty long article. So if you want to read it, feel free to. But America's Pursuing Happiness in All the Wrong Places. I'm not necessarily fully agreeing with everything in the article, but it ch- intrigued me. I'm like, man, it's interesting to hear someone, an author, uh, make a statement like that because I would, uh, I would tend to very much agree with that statement. That's why I wanted to, I'm curious what he had to say. And I, I mean, not to go in detail, because that's not necessarily the, the, the bulk of what I want to say today and what I believe God's Word is going to say to speak to us today, but in that article, I think that spoke to something that's going on, It really it's gone on forever as humanity has lived on this earth and fallen form uh, since the garden, is that we're trying to pursue happiness, but what is it about our culture uh, that I mean, like, think about it. I, 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 did this this week. I was, I just, you know, was like looking at CNN or went to Fox Five, I think it is in Atlanta. I think, like, I typed in the wrong thing the first time. I'm trying to, still trying to adjust Atlanta uh, news and that kind of stuff. And you read the news. And I'm, I'm, I i do not need to tell you this. You read the news and it is just sadness. You read the news, and it's you know there's this this murder in Idaho. There's a giant snowstorm attacking Buffalo. If you've seen the snow there, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, you you hear of uh, the the Elon Musk and the Twitter, all this craziness, and then you you see and basically every article there was a negative vibe. There's really it's not it's just news. There's no good news about it. It's just. News And in this news, it's oftentimes bad news. It's about terror. It's about tr- it's conflict and chaos in our culture and in our world. And, and then is there hope? And I, but everyone, I would say, as the Atlantic article was titled, is pursuing happiness. But they just can't find it. They, they seem to not be able to find Happiness. They think it, This will happen. This relationship will bring them happiness. They think having a better job and more financial, uh, less financial stress will bring happiness. Or if I have this, or if I have more children, maybe that will give me happiness. Or if I have these things, and, and maybe if if uh, you know society has the the right um, approach to leadership and politics and all these things, then when my politician gets in office, he's gonna make he's gonna fix everything. And we're pursuing happiness in all the wrong ways. And we're just longing for some good news. And we're trying to find it. But what I love about Mark's gospel is Mark's gospel is about not finding good news, but the good news coming. Look at just Mark 1 verse just 1. I mean, I could really preach a whole message. I really debated. I was up until about Friday night. I was debating, do I just preach just verse 1? I'm not, so hopefully that means we're not going to be here an hour and a half. I don't think so, but... Verse 1 says this. This is how Mark opens this gospel. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now let me pause for a second because Mark, I want to give us a picture of this. Mark's saying, let me give you some good news. Because gospel, the word gospel, we're actually going to talk more about the gospel next week and focus on it next week. That's why I landed on, let's do the first 13 verses today. But in Mark's gospel, he starts with this because, first of all, Mark's the first one and the only of what we title the gospels. Let me give you a little bit of background here. So we have the synoptic gospels. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Synoptic basically just means kind of the same. And so the same gospel, this good news that we're going to learn about what it means, is, means good news. Um, but these gospels, this title that has come is really the first person to ever say these words is Mark. Mark. His name's John Mark. We're going to talk about him in a second as well. But Mark gives this title of gospel, good news. And Mark is one of what we call the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptic gospels. These are the ones that are very similar. Mark, though, was the first one written. Approximately about 30 years after the events that we see in these pages. Mark, what we're going to see too, is Mark is is like... He's kind of like cut out the, the, like, you know, he's he's very concise. Uh, unlike myself sometimes. <laughs> you know, he's very concise. He's very precise. He's the shortest. He, his is only, uh, is very short compared to uh, Luke and Matthew. Luke and Matthew are very thorough. Luke wanted to be very thorough. He was uh, like a doctor. He's very wise, a uh, uh, knowledgeable person, and so sure enough, L- Luke is going to acquire and find people, eyewitnesses, and talk to these eyewitnesses like a lawyer would. Get all the events like, oh, so you were there at that healing? You were there when when Lazarus was risen from the dead, tell me about it. And he would get the information and he would write it down. And so then he, Luke, put the gospel of Luke into written form, so telling the whole story. Mark, though, kind of jumps straight in, because if you know, right, Luke 2, I, mean, I think a lot of people know, like Luke 2, right? You probably read this coming up in about a month. <laughs> We read, we read this, the story of Jesus' birth around Christmas, and Luke 2 is the kind of the go-to And Matthew starts with a, a genealogy, and it starts with this. John, though, John's a little bit more unique of a gospel. John starts all the way at the beginning of creation. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes way back. He's like, let me go all the way back to the beginning of all creation. He goes big picture, and a lot of theology in the book of John. Mark... He's fast. He uses the word immediately 41 times in this, in this short book. He says immediately. All right, and he just jumps right into the details. What we'll see even in, this, in, the, in our reading here, you're going to quickly see that you're like, wait, I think I know more to this story from somewhere else. Yes, Luke and Matthew expound on some of these stories. Mark is like, let me give you Jesus. Matthew and Luke want to give you the teachings of Jesus. Let me hear what Jesus had to say. Mark's focus is all about Jesus. Let me show you Jesus and his power. He's brief, he's quick, and it's beautiful. And you're like, well, who is this John Mark? Well, John Mark was um, a, a, a first-century Jew during this time. His mom was Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, but Mary was connected to the disciples, and sure enough, he was, their home was one of the main meeting places uh, for the disciples in the first church. The church was gathering in their home. And John Mark would have gone on the very one of the missionary journeys with Paul. As Paul is spreading the gospel to Europe and to the Gentile world, Mark joined them. John Mark, this is the Mark that we're talking about, joined them on that journey. And as John Mark was on one of those journeys, he kind of quit he kind of quit on Paul, and Paul was very upset about this. And he was a cousin of Barnabas. If you heard of Barnabas, you kind of sometimes people give that person a character. They say, you're "Like man, that person's a lot like Barnabas." And Bar- Barnabas was considered like an encourager, and he was a mender of relationships. And Barnabas would be one who would mend that relationship back with John, Mark, and Paul. Where later, Paul would mark would say of Mark um, that he has been of, of use to me, a benefit to my ministry later on in his ministry. So John, Mark, though, is written from the perspective of one of the disciples. Mark was not a disciple at this time of one of the 12, uh, but Mark is written from Peter's uh, perspective. It's kind of like he was penning as Peter's explaining to him, and Peter's telling him the story, and so we'll see some of those clues as we study uh, this great book. But in Mark chapter 1, I want us to look at the first 13 verses this morning to kind of give us a picture here of where we're uh, headed um, with this book. In Mark 8, I want you to just turn to a couple passages if you have a Bible with you. If not, you can just listen. But there's a couple things. Mark's really main focus is showing you who is Jesus. Who's the real Jesus? Who's the authentic Jesus? He's spending his bulk of his time, and in Mark chapter 8, um, he first gives us a clue as to who Jesus is. And it tells us in, in Mark 8, 29, where Peter is asked, and all the disciples are asked, who do you say that I am? They ask first, like, what are people saying about me? And they're like, oh, you're a great prophet. Maybe you're like, uh, you've come back from the dead, like John the Baptist, who was beheaded, or you're one of the great prophets, like Elijah, or whatever. And they're saying all these things, you're a good teacher, these things. But he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this Great statement in Mark 8, 29, and he says it here, and we're going to look at it later on. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. In Matthew and and Luke, we get more detail. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what does that word Christ even mean? I think sometimes we think of Christ as like Jesus' last name, like Jesus Christ, as his last name. But no, Christ is a title. Christ was, uh, it's the word anointed one. He is the, the holy one of heaven. He is the promised one. The, it's a kingly term. Uh, I've been studying on my own just through, through Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Um, and, and when you see, it's interesting, when they would have a new king of Israel, what would they do? They would take oil and they would pour it on their head as the anointing of this is God's chosen one to lead this people. They have this formal ceremony. And it's this picture of this anointing. That, and we're going to see that anointing comes in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling, indwelling Jesus, who is God, in fact. But He comes in to give Him full power as the Son of God on earth. But here He's the Christ, the Anointed One. And then later in Mark, at the very end, after His death on the cross in Mark 15. In Mark 15, verse 39, so Jesus has just given up His last breath on the cross. And listen to what this centurion says. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said this, truly this man was the Son of God. And so Mark, in this wonderful gospel, is going to point us and say, who is Jesus? And he's going to declare him as the promised one, the Holy One, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he's going to come from a perspective of suffering. We're going to get a phrase a lot like he's the suffering servant or a man of sorrows, as the Old Testament points us to. He's this one who's acquainted with grief and difficulty. Why would Mark do that? Why would he come from that approach to his audience? Well, because the question is, who is his original audience? His original audience is Roman Christians. See, again, 30 years past the events of Jesus' death, okay, that puts us to about A.D. 64, 65, Um, to about A.D. 70. Most put this book as being written around that time. And what does that mean? You're like, well, that doesn't, I mean, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Well, in in A.D. about 64, um, there was a a massive fire in Rome, and Nero was um, uh, the emperor at the time, and Nero used that as an excuse and blamed the Christians that they were causing havoc and that they had caused this fire that some have even argued that Nero himself had started. But and then what that led to was an immense amount of persecution. Tacitus, who was um, a person who chronicled some of the events and the things of this time, Tacitus would m- remark of how there were, there were streets lined with crosses of Christians on these crosses. They used animals and animal skin to, and they used animals and, and wild beasts to to murder and brutally murder. And you know, you know we've we've heard of the Colosseum in Rome and how that was used and and all the persecution. And so here, uh, Mark is writing to his audience, trying to offer them hope. He's offering them good news in the midst of not much good news. They're looking around and saying. Where am I going to find happiness? Where am I going to find joy in life? Oh, I'm, I'm fearing for my life. I'm, I'm hiding in, in places, in catacombs and others, and I'm hiding in different places, hoping that Nero and his, and his people are not going to persecute me. And so here Mark writes in these words, as he's writing to this Roman audience, faced and filled with persecution, because in AD 70, Rome was going to ransack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy the area, the temple. Now, if you go to Israel, there's a dome of the rock sitting on there, a mosque sitting on top of it, all kind of starting at this point and seeing this persecution. And Mark is writing to this audience. And one other thing before we jump into this, I promise we're going to get there. One other thing that I think is important for us to see is this, I think, especially maybe if you're a skeptic, I don't don't know what you think about Scripture, about Jesus, but when you Think of this, that it was written only about 30 years after the events of it happened. So it all would have been passed down verbally at this point. You know, it's verbally being passed down like, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Did you hear about this this event and that event? And they're passing it down through words and all these things. And Mark starts to pen it through, through Peter. And he writes this down about 30 years. So he writes the events. Now think about this. If this was written 100, 200 years later, what could, what, who, would, who would defend what he had to say? Who would be able to be like, no, 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 that didn't happen. Lazarus wasn't risen from the dead. No, no, no. When he's writing this, these people are still alive. There's plenty of people who were eyewitnesses to the events that Mark is writing. So when he writes them, we can trust that what he's writing is true. And we know that when we believe in the dual authorship of Scripture, that it was written by through faithful men who were writing exactly what the Holy Spirit of God was communicating them to write. And Mark is writing, and he starts in this way, and I want you to look at it. We're going to read it all the way to verse 13. He says it here, Mark chapter 1, again in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Or prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the woods, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, there's that (laughs) immediately, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Even there, that word torn is an interesting word. The other authors say it was Heavens, the heavens were open, but here he uses even more descriptive of this idea of tearing, that heaven was torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He's not a dove. The Spirit is not a dove. It's, he's descending like a dove, like hovering over. He comes down, and a voice came from heaven. So as the heavens are torn open, a voice come, comes from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately, there's our word again, drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So again, Mark is moving quick. He's moving really quick. Actually, what was going to happen is 20%, I mean, only, I mean, like he's going to fast forward to where 20% of this whole book is is the last week of Jesus's life he's going to quickly, he wants to quickly move immediately. He's he's moving quickly through Jesus' earthly ministry, these, these, uh, these just really these three years, and he's going to move really fast and get us straight to that last week of the cross. And we're going to do the same. We're going to kind of move quickly, and then we're going to get and spend a good bulk of our time looking the last, the last part, which is almost half of it, looking at that last week of Jesus's Life. Let me pray one more time as we look at just a few points this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you'll speak to us this morning. Thank you for this book, uh, and we thank you for Mark and writing it and you inspiring him to write it. And I pray uh, that as we look at it, we would uh, learn more about you and how much our hearts should long for you. So, God, awaken in our hearts. Stir in us an affection for you and for your word. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So Mark is trying to approach this and saying, here is Jesus, and here is how he came. And so I want us to see this first, is this, Jesus came, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One of those prophecies I read earlier was Isaiah 42 about the servant. If you read from kind of a Psalm Isaiah 42 all the way to 53, you basically are getting the section of the suffering servant. It's this one that was talked about as a suffering servant. My and it was in this phrase of, of God speaking, and he's saying, My servant the promised one. He talks of this often. And Mark, if you noticed, in verse 2, he says this. I mean, I think I said this when I opened this morning. I didn't realize how much time I was going to spend in the Old Testament studying Mark. And I spent so much of my time in the Old Testament seeing all the connections that Mark was using. And so we see that Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What are these prophecies? Well, as it tells us in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see, this is a prophecy from of old. But it was a prophecy that actually is a combination of about three different passages. One from Exodus 23, one from Malachi 3, and also Isaiah 40 verse 3. In Malachi 3.1, the prophecy is, I send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. In Isaiah 40 verse 3, it's a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Here, these prophecies are are blended as Mark blends these and he's really giving an attribution to the most famous one and to the bigger bulk of it, which is Isaiah passage. That's why he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before you, your face. You see, the Old Testament was, a full, was full of promises of a Messiah. A pro, they were promises about a holy one who was going to come and he was going to redeem Israel. He was going to come back and he was to be this, they, they viewed him as a conquering king that he would come and that he would, he would remove the kingdom that was oppressing the Israelites, whether it was the Syrians, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it was the Romans, and sure, or the Philistines, or you name all the different ites that you see in the Old Testament, and all these different ones, this Messiah would come and he would make the path straight, he would clear the way, but they were looking for, there was going to be a sign, and they knew this, there was going to be this sign, and, and their sign was going to be there was going to be a person who was going to look a lot like Elijah. He was going to be kind of an oddball. He's going to look weird. Elijah was one who, who as we see John the Baptist is described, is, is kind of a little, I mean, our word we would use maybe is like a little kooky. Like, I mean, he's a little weird. Uh, now, John was clothed, it says in verse 6, John was clothed with camel hair, camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, he's like, all right, let's eat some lo- locusts and wild honey. There's a little bit of protein there, right? Sure enough, you know, the, the honey will help offset the locust, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, but he takes these things, but those are all, like, like, it's not, why would Mark point that out? Like, just so he could be like, tell a joke or something? No. He's, he's telling this because all the Israelites would have known. They would have all known that there was going to be this, these, these quotes like we're seeing in verse 2 and 3. That there would be this one, this forerunner, this person who's going to pave the way. And he's going to be an Elijah-like prophet who's going to be p- telling the people to prepare for the coming Messiah. And so when they're looking for the Messiah, they're actually looking for the forerunner. They're looking for the person that we see here is John the Baptist. They're looking for that Elijah-like prophet. I, I mean, listen, to, listen, think about this. In the Old Testament, most theologians would all agree on at least this number. That there's approximately over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus directly fulfills. And you might be like, okay, well, I mean, like, Jesus, if He's really smart, He's really versed, He can kind of set Himself up to fulfill prophecies. But I mean, okay, if He's actually God, He can do those things. But certain things like, for instance, where He's born. Think about this. Jesus is kinda come from Galilee. He's going to come from Nazareth. I think a lot of us probably maybe know that, Nazareth, You've heard of that, like whether it's through Christmas songs or different things. But did you know that Nazareth is never mentioned once in the Old Testament? And yet this is where Jesus comes from. He comes from this tiny little insignificant town, born in Bethlehem, but his family, and he grew up in Nazareth. And his family, that's where he would have lived and grown up and maybe probably carved wood and worked with his father on, on different things as a carpenter. But there's over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, one of those being born in Bethlehem, but yet his family's from Nazareth, but he just happened to be born in Bethlehem like the prophecy had said. Oh, Also, too, there's a forerunner who comes before him who's going to actually be his cousin. We learn that in in Matthew as we learn more about Zechariah and his mom, John the Baptist's mom. But we see these things, but ultimately Jesus came and he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about himself. And and Mark is trying to focus on those things. That's why he spends some time on John the Baptist. Why would he spend time on John the Baptist if his sole focus is like, let me tell you about Jesus. But first, let me tell you about John. No, he's helping his audience, these Christians who would have been familiar with the Old Testament. No, this Jesus is actually, in fact, not just the Messiah, but he's also the Son of God. But I want to help you see all those prophecies in the Old Testament. He fulfills them. He's actually who he said he was. And he came to rescue. He came to save. He is the good news. And so when he's telling us about John the Baptist, he's really telling us about the prophecies and pointing and giving us clues into um, who actually Jesus is. And so people of Israel are, are looking, they're wondering, and they're waiting, and here Jesus comes. And Mark's trying to say, look, see? See, he's coming. And the John the Baptist came, and as, he's, as John was out in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism in verse 4 of repentance for the forgiveness of sins... And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And were, why would they go out to the wilderness? Why would they go out to this crazy guy? Why? Because he looked like they were thinking about those past things that were said. And they're like, hey, we need to get right. We need to prepare our hearts for this. If the Messiah is actually coming, this is the sign of the end. We need to go and get ready. We need to get our hearts ready. And so sure enough, John the Baptist being kind of weird, proclaiming repentance and saying, look, look, you need to repent of your sins. Usually, that's not a recipe for success in ministry. You know what looks successful in our culture? Tell you like, hey, if you trust in Jesus, you're going to have a lot of things. God will give you a prosperity gospel. We think that works. We think repentance doesn't work, but sure enough, it works. It worked for John the Baptist. It works today. And here, John the Baptist is proclaiming repentance, and the people are actually going out to the wilderness, being baptized in this symbolism of cleansing. It's a different baptism than the one that we see today. But here, as this fulfillment of prophecy comes, and Jesus, sure enough, it tells us, and notice this in verse verse 9. He says, in those days, Jesus came from, there it is, came from Nazareth of Galilee, and people thought nothing good comes from Galilee. Here comes this seemingly insignificant carpenter's son. And he comes, and he wanted to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And you might be asking, like, now, if this is a baptism of repentance, and if you're like, I I think I, I know a little bit about Jesus. I've heard he's, like, sinless, like he's never sinned, he's God. Why would God, Jesus, why would he need to repent of anything? Why would he need to be baptized, you might ask? Well, this kind of leads to my second point, is Jesus came to identify with sinful mankind. He came to identify, to connect himself with the people. He came, he incarnated himself. That's why he's, he's not just born in high society. He's not like he comes like an angel or like this heavenly being. No, he comes in human form. It's the incarnation. That's what we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus coming. And so here, Jesus came to identify with sinful man. He's connecting himself with mankind and with humanity. And so here, it tells us in verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But if you know from the other Gospels, we know that John's like, No, 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 I don't need to baptize you. Because he's like, no, I don't. I, that's, I'm, he, he saw himself in such humility. We see he says in this passage, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of your sandals. You might be like, "All right, I mean that's, that's a little bit low," but in that society, that was like the lowest of lows. Like Jews were not even like it was only for servants, in the lowest of low servants. It'd basically like it'd be basically like for us today. Like I'm unworthy to to clean your toilet for you. Like I'm I'm just I'm not even worthy of even that privilege. John was saying, like, I, I mean, people are coming out. I mean, he's having this great ministry. He has his own disciples who are learning and studying under John. We see this later in the Gospels. He is this person of, of, of and, and Jesus would even proclaim him to be, like, no one born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. But yet here, John, in this moment, is like, no, I'm not worthy to baptize you. But Jesus said, no, I need to be. Why would he need to be baptized? He was connecting himself. And this baptism was connecting himself with sinful man. And he's connecting himself and he's identifying with sinful man. I love, um, I read this as I was studying one of the uh, commentaries. He said this, because Jesus was sinless, he needed no baptism of repentance. But in his baptism, he associated himself with us sinners and placed himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his guilt, but for ours. Not because he feared the wrath to come, but to save us from it. His baptism meant the cross. He was connecting himself with sinful humanity and their need of repentance. And so he was going to identify himself with this. We're going to see this as we continue to look at the rest of the story in in verses 12 and um, 13. But see, Jesus came to identify with sinful mankind. Something that stood out to me as I was studying this passage, and it never stood out to me before. But to understand what Mark's doing, he uses wilderness terms frequently. Um, he talks about the Jordan. Even this baptism was at the Jordan. These are significant landmarks for the Israelites. You see, the wilderness was where? Where was the wilderness? Remember, in Egypt, the people of God were uh, slaves in Egypt. And as they're enslaved in Egypt, God sends a a rescuer. He sends sends Moses to be his his person to go and to call the um, Pharaoh to let his people go. And sure enough, they're let go. And what do they do? The people of God, they cross the Red Sea, and then what happens? They end up in the wilderness. And it was the proving ground. The wilderness was the proving ground of Israel's faithfulness to God. But what happened in the wilderness? The people failed, they disobeyed, they complained. They wanted to go back to enslavement in Egypt rather than live free in the wilderness. And the wilderness was this proving ground. And as they're in the wilderness, they failed to obey God. They failed to trust Him. And they trusted in other things. And they they feared. And what happened? A whole generation of people never got to go to the promised land. They died in the wilderness because they failed they failed to trust God. But here Jesus is, look at verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him again immediately. Immediately drove him out. I mean here we're saying the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And here we have this unbelievable affirmation in this baptism where God the Father declares and he says, "This is my beloved son." That points us to the Old Testament as well. It points us to Genesis, and it points us to who? Isaac. You remember where Abraham was given a son, a promised son, his, his love son. The Bible tells us in Genesis that it was his son that he loved, and he's going to offer him as a sacrifice to God, because God asked it of him. And sure enough, God spared his son his beloved son. And here we get the same comment from the father. The father looking down at the son with pleasure and love and gratitude and amazement and says, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. This affirmation, but then yet in this immediate affirmation, immediately the spirit leads him to the wilderness. You're like, if you love me, dad, would you kick me to the wilderness for? I mean, I was watching Amazing Race this week. We're a little bit behind if you're ahead. Don't tell me. Um, uh, I'm a little behind, but we were watching. They were in Petra. Uh, They're in the middle of the desert. Man, you're looking at the desert. You're like, that is a lot of sand. <laughs> I've, never been, I've never been to a desert. So for those of you that have, that's pretty cool, I guess, as long as you came back alive. Uh, but I'm like, man, the thought of being lost out in the desert, I mean, is terrifying. And here, immediately, like, I love you, son. Now go to the desert. And the Spirit drives him, drives the Son, Jesus, to the desert. It says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. So he's out there for 40 days, really out without food, water. He's out there in the wilderness. And here Satan comes, the spiritual forces of evil and darkness against him, tempting him. Here's the proving ground in the wilderness. And Jesus is the better Israel. As Jesus is in the wilderness, He is experiencing full temptation, full-on spiritual attacks from the devil. He withstands and perfectly obeys the Father. We get this in Matthew and Luke, much more description of the actual temptations that take place. But again, why is He saying these things? You see, Jesus is identifying Himself in His baptism, and also in the temptation with mankind. He's doing exactly what we should have done. He's doing exactly what Israel should have done, obeying the Father perfectly, not giving in to temptation. But the people of Israel in the wilderness, this proving ground for their faithfulness to God, they failed the test. We, as humankind, have all failed the test, but yet only one, Jesus, comes and goes to the wilderness, and He perfectly obeys the Father. He completely obeys His will, and He is sinless. He's the spotless one. He's the one that Peter would explain as the the spotless, the Lamb of God. As John proclaims, he says, "Here's as he saw Jesus, as, as Luke tells the story, as he sees Jesus off in the distance, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this leads me to the last point is this. Jesus came as our only hope of redemption. Jesus came as our only hope of redemption. Last night I, had, I was on YouTube <laughs> and uh, I was playing Star Wars, um, a clip from Star Wars, and it was, um, I, think it's, I think it's episode six for all the Star Wars nerds. Um, uh, and in episode six, uh, there's a message that's given uh, and we and we hear uh, Princess Leia and so R two D two has this message and and, she, and 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 Luke's there Skywalker's there and uh, Princess Leia they finally get this thing going and Princess Leia's like Obi Wan Kenobi you're our only hope <laughs> and, she, and Amanda's going, looking at me like why are you watching what are you? she asked me like what are you watching over there I'm like it's sad. It goes with what I'm wanting to say tomorrow. <laughs> and she's like, Star Wars? I'm like, yeah, I know. It's a stretch, but still. You know, but it's, it's, like it's, it's, it's a new hope is the title of that, that episode, uh, of that movie. And the idea of, that, like, people are longing for hope. They're looking for hope. And they find it just like we were seeing in that, I was explaining that Atlantic that Atlantic article People are looking and they're pursuing hope, they're pursuing happiness, but they're pursuing it in all the wrong places. And here, the G- Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has invaded, I want you to see that, as the heavens are torn open. You know, it's like, we hear this phrase, all hell is breaking loose. You know, it's a term we use, like, when when chaos is happening, all these bad things are happening, or, like, when our kids are going crazy, right, at home. You know, we're like, man, it's going nuts, or small group goes a little wild with all the kids, you know, in your home or something. You know, uh, all of us relate, right, Um, because we have so many kids. Um, And we're like, man, all hell's breaking loose, or, like, we look at... But here's what we see in this story is all of heaven is breaking loose the heavens are torn open and jesus is invading our planet because he is literally not obi-wan kenobi not a, a president a new president not trump not biden not any elected official no person on this planet can be our hope our only hope of redemption and salvation is in jesus this is why i love verse one so much the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Jesus isn't the bearer. It's not like He invaded our planet and said, let me tell you, there's hope. Let me tell you, there's, there's hope for your, your, your struggle. There's hope for your, your, your regret and your guilt and that all the, the weight that you feel of your sin. There's hope. Let me tell you about the hope. Let me bury the good news to you. No, Jesus Himself is the good news. It's the good news is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the beginning of the gospel, this word very first time used in in Scripture, this picture of gospel. And you see, gospel is this. It's it's the all-encompassing fact of all that Jesus has done, who He is and what He has done to accomplish salvation for mankind. And you see, as heaven was torn open, as in heaven invaded earth, the beginning of Jesus' earthly, earthly ministry, heaven is torn open and the Son of God comes to our rescue. And at the end, in his, Jesus' death, the veil is torn so that we can enter the presence of God. Here Jesus comes in grace and He comes and invades us. And then in His death, in His completed work, in His full obedience of the Father, as He lives the life that we should have lived in obedience that the Israelites failed to do and that we failed to do. All of us have failed to keep His law. And because of that, because we failed in the proving ground of the wilderness, because each of us failed daily, we needed hope. We needed gospel. And this gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the good news Jesus came. One way that I've heard it and the way I've used it is, is, is simply put. So, a little definition to help you understand gospel. It's about the simplest, most concise that I can come up with, and I haven't even come up with it. I've heard it. Is Jesus in my place? Gospel is, the gospel is Jesus in my place. He comes and he's the better Israel. He comes and obeys the Father. He comes and dies the death that we should have died and the eternal death that we should have experienced. Christ took the full weight of that on himself through the cross that Mark is trying to get as fast as he can to in telling the story of Jesus. He's going to point you to the gospel and explain to you what Jesus has done. In Luke 24, I want to end with this. Jesus has made a way, but in Luke 24, so Luke's another one of the Gospels, he's the one who gives a lot of details, and one of the details that he gives, and it's one of my favorite stories of the resurrection, happens in Luke 24. He's walking along a road, um, the road to Emmaus, and these disciples who are dejected, they're like, our hope, our hope just died on a cross. What are we going to do now? The fisher, go back to fish, go back to being a tax collector again, like they don't know what to do. They're dejected. They're sad. They've lost their hope. Their hope was in Christ, and now he's been crucified on a cross. He's dead. And Jesus appears, the risen Lord, appears along that road. He's walking next to him. And he said to them, in verse 25, Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Remember, he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He said, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, Jesus, would suffer, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And here's what Jesus did. And beginning with Moses, going all the way back to Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He started to explain to them that guess what the Old Testament tells us about? It's gospel too. It's pointing us to the need of a Savior. And here the Savior has come, and he needed to. He's like, oh foolish ones, it's low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It was necessary that Christ should suffer. And Mark is trying to encourage his audience and saying, here's the suffering servant. He's going to come and we're going to watch. He's going he's to have power over Satan and sickness and help. He's going to have all this power. And he's pointing to saying, like, this is the Son of God. Let me show you. This is Jesus. And guess what? This can help you with. This can help you through your suffering as narrow might put you on a cross one day. That you will stand firm and believe that Jesus is real and that you can trust him through all the challenges, all the trials. You, he is the suffering servant and he identifies with you. He's experienced suffering just like you might be experiencing suffering. He's experienced temptation just like you're experiencing temptation. But here's the beautiful truth. In the gospel, Jesus did it perfectly. Where I gave up, where Mark quit on Paul, Jesus never quit. He went straight to the cross bore the wrath of God on himself so that we could be saved. And I cannot wait to continue this story over the coming weeks. It is the gospel. It's the good news. And here, as we start in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will you put your trust in him? You see, he's writing to this Roman audience, and it's, it's probably why he used that Roman centurion, that comment of the Roman centurion, As he watched Jesus die, he saw the earth just shake and the heavens being shaken. And as the veil is torn and as he's watching, he says, surely he is the Son of God. I pray that each of us would put our faith in that reality. And as we walk through this journey of this book of Mark, that we would believe in this gospel. Can't wait to look at it again even next week. Um, And my prayer is that you'll have a a Thanksgiving that's like none other, that you'll be thankful for the salvation uh, that we have in Christ alone, that He is our only hope of redemption. Let me pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for this truth of Scripture, this this book that was written almost 2,000 years ago. But it was written for our instruction so that we could learn who You are, what you've done, and how we can be saved. And what a Savior we have in Christ. I thank you for your coming. Thank you that you came to invade us, that the heavens were torn open so that we could be made right with God, that you were perfectly righteous so that you could offer us and give us your righteousness. So, Father, I pray that if there's someone in this room, maybe, that who's... who's downcast, who's struggling, who is trying to figure out a pursuit of happiness and is keep missing and keeps missing the mark. I pray that they'll see that the only path to true happiness and true satisfaction is found in Christ alone. God, do a work in us. Do a work in my heart. Do a work in us as a people. God, move on our hearts. Awaken us to your beauty and to your glory, and may it lead us to unending worship, We want to declare your praises to the nations. And as we are, want to be like John the Baptist, just to declare you and point and say, don't look at me, look at Christ. Let me point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray that we would do that. So God, do a work in our hearts. Shape and mold us into your image. Um, And so we love you, God, and we ask your blessings. And we just want to offer our, our, our praise and adoration to you as we sing together. And we do that with a pure heart. In Jesus' name, amen.